0: Timo, thank you so much for joining us today at Surfcorp's uh, lovely offices. Um, how are you doing today?
1: Good, good, very good. Cannot yeah. complain at all.
0: So, you know, we're about a year out from your big acquisition. We'll yeah, kind of closer, cover everything. Yeah. Um, but how has the last 12 months been for you?
1: The last 12 months have been a bit of like an, uh, a mental roller coaster. I think lots of people who sell their companies basically say, like, they then feel quite sad I didn't feel sad, um, but I did feel this sense of after we signed the deal, I remember the next day I just went to Gym Box and then I went to Sainsbury's and I was just like, my whole life has changed, but everything else is very normal. And um, that's always a bit of a, a mental kind of, I guess, shift that you have to go through to be like, oh, actually my whole life has changed. but. The world keeps going on Mm. and you have to almost like adapt to that rather than the world like adapting to you so that was fun did some good trips went to bali fell in love with elephants (laughs) um actually in um in about six weeks i'm going to the serengeti so I discovered my love for travel, so it's been good.
0: That's always good. So has that been your lavish spend, or have you done any other?
1: My lavish spend. Do you know what? I actually, I'm not like a super lavish person, which is, um, which is, I guess, to some degree, quite good, mm. because if I was, oh my god, I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be going nuts. Um, but yeah, I think the Bali trip was probably the most lavish one. I was like. 30 grand trip, like first-class flights, like everything, everything else. Like, you know what? This was much deserved yeah. rather than, you um, know, buying a Rolex or something like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for people who don't necessarily know your story, yeah. um, I know it's difficult to kind of boil down, you know, 10, 10 odd years into, yeah, yeah. into a short soundbite, but could you just give us a bit of an overview of your career? If that's right?
1: My career. Okay, so first company... So I've always kind of done entrepreneurial things. My plan initially was to become a journalist when I was a kid, and then I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. So got really into business quite young. Um, 14 was when I started my first interesting thing, my first money-making thing a tutoring company 17 i then started a company called entrepreneur express which was like an online media publication i guess to some degree quite similar to um business leader um i was fortunate enough to get into the whole like facebook groups and facebook world this was um 11 years ago when like you know facebook pages were just Mm. rampant like you could Mm. just grow them um so i grew a bunch of pages through that, use that as traffic to, uh, to distribute the publication. And I was fortunate enough for that to be like my first ever, like major win. So I sold that to a company called horizon media in America. Um, and that, you know, wasn't huge. It was like 110 grand, but like for a 17 year old,
0: mm.
1: like for something that he'd been working on for 11 months selling for 110 grand I was like, Whoa. Like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life basically. And then after that, in my second year of university, started fanbytes, which I guess like was the big win, which was all around helping brands to tap into a Gen Z audience, scaled that from like zero to seventy five people and then we sold it last year. So it's been kind of like a iterative step of discovering stuff, realizing that I'm good at it, iterating on it further and then growing and growing from there.
0: I th- I think I mean, even talking at, you know, that first business you started at 14, that's quite a big entrepreneurial kind of step to take. Yeah. Did you have any kind of blueprint when you were growing up that was like, you know, this is the kind of person I want to emulate, or was it very much kind of self-taught at that stage?
1: Um, So I don't think I had any specific person I wanted to emulate. I think it was a specific type of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I've said it before, but... When I was around, like when I started the thing at 14, I didn't know I was starting like a business. It was just a tutoring thing. I was good at maths. I tutored people maths. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it. At 17, I discovered this website called Retire21. And I remember reading stories of young entrepreneurs who were starting companies. They covered people like uh, Pete Cashmore, who was the founder of mashable you know these 20 year olds building companies before 30 i was like wow this is crazy and so i don't think it was a specific person Mm -hmm. i think it was more there was just lifestyle Mm -hmm. that i thought like me as a kid who grew up on like a council estate in southeast london i was like wow this is a new world Mm -hmm. which i can get involved in Mm -hmm. and that was really what it was. There's this whole kind of thing, right? About um, I think it was like Tony Robbins who said it, but basically, like people are, are either pushed away from something or like pulled towards something. Mm-hmm. So you're either pulled towards an idea of what you could be or being pushed away of something that you don't want. Mm-hmm. And um, I think at the beginning, I was very much like I was pushing away from where I lived, where I felt I was kind of unfairly living there, Mm. right? And then I then began to be like pulled towards what could be possible from a business perspective. So Mm. that's kind of the transition of mindset and beliefs that really helped me.
0: Yeah. And then again, coming back to Entrepreneur Express, thank goodness you didn't stick around with it. (laughs) I'd I'd, I'd be scared for my job. But uh, I, I just want to take you back to that, like 17 someone, like you mentioned, from America yeah. just emails you and goes yeah, yeah. like, you know, I want to talk to you about the company. Yeah. And then I want to acquire the company.
1: Yeah. Crazy.
0: I mean, that's that's mental. Like, how yeah. how, how did that feel? Like, can you go back to that? And yeah. You've got context now with fan bites. Yeah. But how, yeah, yeah. That must have been a, a crazy moment for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, so <sighs> The whole idea of Entrepreneur Express, when we began it, was like pretty much a business media publication. Let's interview cool people. Let's understand business from people who've done it before, and then let's put it into a publication that people care about. And similar to you guys, like we had an online and an offline version, but the offline version completely flopped mm-hmm. um, because at that age, I didn't understand like the mechanics of building a print publication. It's like. <laughs> You can't just call up people a week before and say do you want to buy (laughs) ads right like this is something that has to be pre-planned so the offline version uh tanked and then the online version was what i spent all my time on and to be honest i think i started it and when i started discovering this hack of basically being able to grow big facebook pages right so The way I drove traffic to it was I'd grow pages around, you know, Gary Vee, Tony Robbins, Les Dennis, right? Like inspirational, motivational stuff. And I would drive people from there to the site. And it was very much a case of, well, I have a vehicle that's just doing well. It's like, I write stuff, then I put it in the pages, and then that then brings people over. And that was going quite well. The acquisition for me was very much a thing of I didn't expect it but I expected it <laughs> so yeah. what I mean by that is um when we when I got this email from this person it was like can we partner up and in my whole idea of partnering up I thought it was well I've got this magazine I've got this publication you've also got your own publication so maybe let's like swap articles or or something like that and then he asked me to send him all my stats and when he asked me to send him my stats the thing which I wouldn't do now because now I would have thought about it more Mm. but I genuinely sent him everything for a guy who I hadn't met ever before Mm. Um, he could have been a fraud he could have been anything I was like all right well here are my page views here are the um, Facebook pages that I use, here are all that stuff. And then we, and I'm pretty sure that I also sent an email which said, oh, by the way, I'm still in sixth form. Uh, <laughs> um, and so if this required coming over to America, I can't do it. Yeah. Just something like that. And then um, when he then when we began the conversation and he said, hey, actually, I've been looking at the numbers rather than part enough, we'd like to buy you. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was just like, holy shit, Like, I can't believe that I built something that is of value mm-hmm. that quickly, that fast, because it's only been 11 months, like mm-hmm. very short time period. And I remember just in my mind thinking, wow this feels like magic Mm -hmm. right this feels like I'm creating something and from my own brain and it's come out into the world and someone has now said I would like to buy this from you so my immediate thought was very much kind of like wow this is what I want to spend Mm -hmm. the rest of my life doing and then when we then were going through the process one thing that I haven't ever said was like, going through the process, I always thought it was a dream. Mm. I, I, like, I was convinced that, like, this guy it somehow sort of was, was some kind of... Yeah. I was like, okay, so you want to pay for this? Mm. Okay, fine. Are you sure? Are you very sure? <laughs> um, but what I would say that was, like, really good about the, the acquisition was, like... It taught me, A, about being able to just invent things, but it really taught me about the kind of power of distribution, because Horizon Media now is quite a big agency, but at the beginning, their whole thing was they wanted to buy like, niche media publications and effectively build kind of, kind of like a Condé Nast type thing. And they really cared about the Facebook pages. And I went, oh, mm, that's interesting. Like, that's actually what they cared about. Mm-hmm. So there's something to be said for, like, if that hadn't been successful, if we hadn't had that acquisition, um, I probably would not have thought about bites mm-hmm. because that set me on this path of, wow, social is the thing that they cared about. Yeah. How much further can we actually push it?
0: Oh, we'll come into fan bites a little bit more in a second, yeah. but I want to get... A little bit hypothetical almost like when yeah. I think back to the last few people we've chatted to obviously John Caldwell yeah uh really really hit the perfect moment in time when phones started mm. becoming a bigger thing before that we were talking to Casper Lee mm-hmm. who's obviously mm-hmm. YouTuber yeah. exactly as things were coming up so obviously for yourself social revolution was happening yeah social media was becoming a really big thing obviously, you know, young people were absolutely nailing the algorithms and stuff like that to get it perfectly right. If you think that social media didn't happen, (laughs) do you think you would have still found something to give you the success that you have today?
1: Do I think I still would have found something? Yes. Do I think I would have found it as easily? No. So I think because I grew up with social media, it just became very innate and very organic to me. Mm. What, in an alternative world, what would have happened is I would have maybe gone out to try and find something Mm. which I could be quite good at, which I could be above average at, and then built a business around it. But it's almost like because, as you call it, the like social revolution, because of that, it was almost, it came to find me, Mm. right? In the same way, there's a lot of people right now, a lot of young people right now who are building businesses just off TikTok, Mm. right? And it's because it's almost like, well, this is my world. Mm. If I'm going to build a business, these are the tools that I actively have. So yes, I would have found an edge, Mm. um, but I think it would have been something a bit more proactive rather than a bit more native, Mm. which is what being part of the social revolution was
0: yeah no that's it i mean there's always that thought or that theory that people have where if you took away everything from elon musk he still he'd be back very very soon because he'd know how to do it and that kind of stuff so that's really interesting and obviously we come into fan bites now on the journey and just give us a little bit of an idea about the scale obviously we mentioned the acquisition already but we'll go into that a little bit but just give us some kind of idea of growth and kind of count when you were growing the business
1: yeah so started um second year of university i then recruited uh my co-founder ambrose cook and then we brought on a cto mitchell as well and i think um we were all in different universities right Mm -hmm. so i went to warwick ambrose went to imperial mitchell went to um nottingham and the whole idea was you know to help brands reach that gen z audience and I'd say that we had some very interesting points of scale. So for the first year in 2017, I think the max that we got the company to was like five people. Um, 2018, then probably about 15. And then 2019, 20 is where we really hit our stride. I I, I think actually in 2020, the team doubled and was probably about... Um, 60 people Mm -hmm. by then so by the time that we saw the company was about 75 people based um, in the UK uh, 8 figures in revenue so we did tens of millions of revenue Um, and then we also then sold the company for tens of millions as well Um, and and it was a very interesting um, journey because I remember that I actually spoke to a VC who wanted to um, uh, fund fund us and I actively said no and the reason I said no he was a bit shocked but because I guess no one actually says no to VCs right mm-hmm. but um, but I said no I think he wanted to invest something like his fund would invest 8 million at, I believe it was like a 65 million uh, uh, pre money so mm-hmm. post money the business would be worth like 70 million or something mm-hmm. and I said no and the reason why was because I had a very clear idea of what the exit could be mm-hmm. for Fanbytes. And I knew it wouldn't be hundreds of millions. But I was, you know, pretty confident that it'd be in, in like, the mid-eight-figure range mm-hmm. because I thought, do you know what? there is, the market is here, we're definitely gonna be able to achieve this amount of revenue. If we're also then able to achieve this general amount of um, market penetration, then we can definitely um, hit the mark there. Yeah. And that's something that I didn't realize was actually very uncommon amongst entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of entrepreneurs start their company and they'll basically take money from anyone. Mm-hmm. And, and even, even worse, Um, they will play a game where someone else has made the rules. Mm. So they'll be like, oh, well, you know, I have this business. We have to go for a series round. Then we have to go for a series A. And then, well, obviously we have to go for series B. It's like, well, no, you don't, Mm. right? What is the outcome that you actively want? And I think for me, it was very much like, well, the outcome that I want for this business is we're going to grow it and in between, uh, Five to seven years, we're gonna scale it up, and then when the market is ready for consolidation, we're then gonna sell the company. And it's not gonna be a hundred million, but it's like comfortably gonna be tens of millions. And that's exactly what happened there. And um, you know, now with a lot of entrepreneurs, I spend a lot of time basically telling them, like, <laughs> almost, almost, um, like, be a lot more realistic. Like, don't try and play a completely different game. Try and play um, Try and play a game that you want to win rather than others want you to win
0: mm. no absolutely and you know the funding thing is so interesting because we're in a world now where these tech valuations are just <laughs> yeah crazy and yeah. you know the the world of funding is is going through yeah, quite quite a seismic change i feel like it's almost like a bit of a bubble that seems yeah, yeah, to be yeah, yeah. coming down especially in the hard times of yeah. the potential recession coming um, one of the interesting things that I kind of noted in the research on you is that you actively chose to only go for angel investors. Yeah. Um, now, that was that was a very interesting thing to read because, you know, some people may not even do that much research into that yeah, kind of yeah. funding. It, like you said, it's just series A, B, yeah, tick yeah. tick the boxes. But where did that kind of thought come from? Is that something that was very premeditated or did you get to the time where you were sitting in front of a VC yeah. and went like, this is actually ridiculous?
1: I think it was completely premeditated. Mm-hmm. I think I knew specifically, I was like, well, we need to get to this amount of revenue in order to achieve this sort of exit value. What's, how much do we actually need to do that? And then just working backwards. So in all, I think we raised about 2 million for the business and it was all angels. And, you know, people put in 100 grand, 50 grand, um, uh, 250 grand and just, and just that the other thing is also I had heard nightmare stories about um, founders who had raised uh, VC money and mm-hmm. had basically had something called like liquidation preferences so what that means is like even if they sold the company um, for whatever amount the VCs and those guys get paid first before them so they they, <clears throat> they would have a preference above the founder <clears throat> and I think from an ego perspective, I didn't like the idea of, I've come up with the idea, I'm doing the hard yards, I'm doing the work, but like there was even a slight potential mm-hmm. that you who just chills and just gives out cash would basically be in a more privileged position than me. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was very much like, A, this doesn't make any business sense, but also my ego wouldn't let me do it. Um, And then also I think from an angel perspective, especially if you're building maybe like your first real significant company, one of the big competitive advantage you can have is the experience and help from other people. And VCs are generally not known to be people who, You can just text at any time and just say, Hey, I've got this problem. Can you help me out? Mm -hmm. Whereas with so many of the angels that we worked with, you know, it could be 2 a.m. and I'm thinking about something and I just shoot them a voice note and Mm -hmm. they will reply and just say, Yeah, you know, do this, do this, or like, this is how I've thought about it. So I think it was a combination of understanding the type of experience and value that I needed and then also a more long term game of, um, well, this is the type of business I want to build, how much funding do we need? Um, And then a bit of like, well, if I'm doing the work, I want to reap Mm -hmm. the rewards. I don't want someone else to be able to reap the rewards before me.
0: And as far as the exit, when did that kind of come into your mind in the Fanbytes journey? Was that something that was quite early on that you kind of built it to exit or was it something that a bit of a light bulb moment for you during the journey?
1: So I think Fanbytes was always built to have some kind of exit. Mm and there were a few frameworks that I used. Um, the first framework was, I just believe that there are basically only four outcomes for any business, right? It's either the business fails, it's either you pass it on to your kids, it's either you take it public or you sell the company. right? Like, those are by and large the only four things. Um, Fanbys was not going to fail. And it's also, um, you know, I started when I was 21, I had no kids, I still have no kids so like to pass it on to nobody. Um, it wasn't the sort of company that could go public um, given the time frame. So the only thing was to achieve some kind of exit. Um, I also think that a second part of it was like, I basically, when I started it, I had written a note to myself, which is basically, all right, by the time I'm 30, whether it's fanbites or whether it's some other company. By the time I'm 30, I want to have sold a company and basically, like, be financially set and, like, have more money than I know what to do with. And I actually told my co-founder this, and we were very agreed on that. So it was very much a kind of, um, we're doing this, and by 30, this needs to happen, right? Now, we did it at 27, which is nice, but there was also this whole idea of... um, there was no other possible um, alternative. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It it was like, we said Mm -hmm. we'll do this by 30, so so it kind of has to happen. Um, And that even goes down to the choice of business that you pick, Mm -hmm. right? So we picked an industry which was nascent but was growing, and my whole theory was, well, There's going to be a time in this industry where there's going to be consolidation Mm. and that is very very important too many too many too many entrepreneurs basically like pick a business with no inherent exit value Mm. so we picked a business where we were like okay we saw this in radio we saw this in tv basically what happens is you have like a specialist tv company a specialist radio company Mm. And then, in like five to ten years, some private equity people will come in and basically say, "We want to roll everything up mm-hmm. and we want everything to be integrated." That is going to happen with the influencer world. Mm-hmm. And so all we basically have to do is ensure that we basically get in the game, stay in the game and do not die, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I've said to that's something that I've said on quite a few um, uh, interviews where, like, you can get very far if all you basically tell yourself is like do not die right <laughs> um if you don't die to do like a funding or co-founder disputes you are always in with a shout and so that was really like those were some of the frameworks that we basically use we're like right this is a market that is going to be consolidated we have a goal by 30 and also mm-hmm. this is the most logical conclusion out of all the possible things mm-hmm. that a company could do and that was how we then came to the idea. You know, when we got when we got approached quite a bit to sell the company, it was like, oh, wow, okay. Consolidation is happening. We are before 30, and we said that there'll be some kind of exit. As
0: you mentioned, Brain Labs was the company that you ended up yeah. um, selling the business yeah. to. Um, as far as finding a suitor for that exit? Yeah how was that a process did you get approached earlier and say no to people just just give us a bit more idea of that
1: yeah so i can run through that so we saw the company in the third of may 2022 Uh, but actually in 2021 in october we had been approached by three different companies in six weeks Mm. and any time that happens at any time that happens that is basically a signal from the market telling you there is some sort of consolidation, and I am absolutely baffled at like the number of entrepreneurs who, who don't open themselves up to that sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we had three companies in such a short space of time, I thought, wow, right, okay, now it's time. I'm pretty sure that I actually sent a text to my co-founder. I just said, "It's time," <laughs> um, and 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 um. He knew exactly what I was talking about (laughs) Um, and so then we said right we are then gonna appoint a bank uh, because for the size of our transaction it it was very important that we had someone who has you know done before some company who had done it before so we appointed a bank and we run a process with them and we appointed them by November yeah by November December was kind of quiet but Everything came roaring back in January mm-hmm. and they basically we met a bunch of potential buyers. All we did was meet six, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually quite a small number and then four of them put in um actually yeah, four of them were quite keen and then three of them put in letters of intent, mm-hmm. which is basically, you know, we've met them, we've vibed with them and then they say like this is what a deal could look like mm. then we went into due diligence i think when i first met brain labs i was actually thinking right okay this could actually make a lot of sense because they're very good at like performance marketing uh um uh, very much like pbc paid social mm. but that brand and content side they didn't have and so i think we are we had someone else who we thought would be a better fit until I then met Brain Labs, and I thought, "Oh, okay, right. This actually makes a lot more sense." Mm-hmm. And a big part of it is also um, a lot of founders wouldn't um, wouldn't acknowledge this, but I think there's also something quite cool, especially if you work in like a niche industry to sell to a company which is also respected in that industry mm-hmm. so being able to say you know like fanbites was acquired by Brain Labs and people go oh Labs like mm-hmm. there is some element of, of, of there's a halo effect mm-hmm. and so that was a whole process from October to yeah basically about like April um, and then we announced in May from the time that we approached appointed a bank and then all the way up to to the time that we then um, Announced the deal,
0: and I want to kind of go back to that, and almost you can—it's a little bit analogous to like an athlete who's retiring. <laughs> Was there a moment? Because yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you've built this company yeah, for yeah, years. Yeah. You've been around the same people for yeah, years, yeah. and now suddenly you—yeah—your past doesn't work to get in the building, kind of thing. Yeah. So did you have a moment where it was like, oh, this is actually pretty crazy? I know, obviously, yeah, the yeah, money's yeah. an upside, but was yeah. there a moment where it was like, wow, this is actually happening? And even though you knew it was coming, yeah, were you yeah, kind yeah. of prepared for
1: that? Yeah, yeah, the, um I mean, yeah, the two stories that I've told before, and I'm sure um, some people may have heard before, but I'll but I'll share a few. I think the crazy moments, um, the first crazy moment was when we, officially uh, like signed everything because there is actually quite a big you know maybe two weeks or so when you've like signed the deal but Mm. the money hasn't dropped and there's this kind of weird limbo stage where you're like I signed it yeah this is done and and you know it's going to happen Um, but it just still feels unreal Mm. and so when we signed the deal um it was I don't know why but deals always seem to be kept quite late mm. and so we were just up until like Friday 2 a.m. just signing docs mm. and because it was you know Friday 2 a.m. it was all done um, virtually and then when the final doc came in to sign I got on a zoom with me Mitchell Ambrose and basically I had this like uh, video recording where where i'd like rehearse the speech in my mind you know like guys i'm so proud of you and, but i was like my brain was so frazzled as to like oh my god is happening i think that i started off with like you know guys i'm so proud and then i just said a bunch of words it's just blah, 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 blah. and i was like oh this is so great it's amazing and we signed it and then i had to do the final signature and the crazy thing is that you sign it off, and then you just get the thing pop up in Gmail saying, like, all parties have signed. And you just go, wow, I, that was it. That was that was all the years and the heartache and the stress and all that stuff that we put in has culminated in this moment. That was a very, very um, crazy experience. The second one is um, one I've said a quite a before, but, like, when the money actually dropped, um, Mitchell and Ambrose were on different um, different banks to me. I had actually opened up a bank account specifically for this um, transaction, and i and they had and we were just walking around trying to find, you know, trying to wait basically for the money to come in, and we just kept checking, kept checking, kept like, scrolling up and refreshing and nothing was showing and then what then happened was Ambrose checked and then he just was shouting he was oh my god oh my God and then uh, Mitchell also checked I was like oh my god like just shouting shouting and then I checked but because I was on a different bank um, I checked and it still showed zero and I was like what the f-? I was the, like, <laughs> I was like what's going on um, And then I had to just keep refreshing, keep refreshing. And then I checked. And then, like, Sunny was, like, more money than I've seen, like, ever in my life. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, this is crazy. And I remember just, like, shouting. Like, that's all I did. Just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Just, like, I kept shouting. So those two were quite surreal moments. I'd say the final moment was actually when I stood in front of the company and I said that we'd sell the company. I think... um, a lot of people who had come to work at fanbites in fact I say a lot like pretty much everyone was really happy mm. and that made me happy because it made me feel good as to the fact that I felt like we had done something good we had done something positive we had chosen the right partner mm. and I think I would have felt maybe slightly different if I had known almost I had like a, quote, unquote, sold out, Mm. you know, to some crappy person who, you know, to some crappy company that I thought there was no way this was a fit. So those three moments were pretty crazy. But I think that, and we're talking about this before, I think for most entrepreneurs, the disconnect is basically when the day after a transaction or anything like that, and like the world just keeps going around Mm. but your world has completely changed and i was speaking to a friend and he said it's actually quite similar to um if you had a family member who passed away Mm. it's like your entire world has changed but everyone is just going about their own way and you just go why hasn't the world stopped you know and i think i had that feeling probably for like the first three months Mm. Um, and I think that there was a part of me, I probably shouldn't say this, but whatever. Um, there was a part of me where like, I'd go to supermarkets or things like that. And like, I would feel this sense of like, guys, I'm fucking rich. Like, guys, look, I just look at me, right? Like, um, because it just felt so crazy to think that there was such a disconnect, but you know, like learn to live with that, learn to grow with that. But, uh, yeah, those were like three... Three moments where it just felt so crazy that this was actively happening, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, I think most entrepreneurs who achieve some kind of transaction, achieve some kind of sale, probably go through that exact same thing as well.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, there's there's one thing that you do very well now, but you did very well when you were at Fanbytes, and that's definitely develop a, a personal brand. Yeah. Um, how important was that? to kind of put yourself out there and be a little yeah. bit more visible, um, you know, kind of, whether that's kind of post-sale, that's something yeah, that you're yeah, looking yeah. at, but how kind of calculated yeah. was that?
1: So when I was running fan buys, because we were quite early in like the influencer game, mm. a lot of people just didn't quite understand it. In yeah. fact, if you look at a lot of the articles of influencers in 2017, it was always like, oh, you know, these kids in their bedrooms, you know, just like shooting videos, they're weird, da-da-da. And so, like, because there was always this lack of understanding, you needed to almost be someone who could, uh, how do I call it, um, take the bullets, mm-hmm. right? So you needed to be someone who could go out into the front line and talk about, actually, this is why this is important. Mm-hmm. These are the strengths of using these influences. This is how the market is evolving. And that would not have happened if, if you didn't, like create a personal brand around it. Otherwise it would have just been very much a, hey, we're Fanbytes. we do this thing. But if the person is not convinced, mm. if the person is not persuaded as to the merit of the whole influencer thing in general, they're not gonna use fanbites anyway, or anyone. Mm. And so actually, you know, for the first two years, it was a very calculated thing, which was uh, this industry needs thought leaders. Mm. And I'm happy to be that person. And then over time, when I start to realize, wow, you know, from a business perspective, this is also doing um, very well uh, in terms of like driving more customers, doing all that stuff. I mean, one one very interesting um, interesting fact is, you know, by the time we sold the company, you know, like eight figures in revenue we actually only had about three percent of that coming from outbound Mm -hmm. so like us going out to people so much of it was like people coming over to us because Mm -hmm. we had spent years and years and years compounding and building thought leadership through content marketing and Mm -hmm. all of that so at the beginning it was more like people don't understand this industry we are here to be able to be that thought leader Mm -hmm. and then it kind of became a competitive advantage and then it then became second nature to do that, which is why even post-sale, things like creating content is, is just second nature because we've done it for so long and I've done it for so long before Fanbytes. Mm. I think building a personal brand now, for anyone, regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you work in a company as a team member, is incredibly, incredibly critical. Mm. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot not have one because in a world where we're all like interacting through the screens, it's not so much um, what you know is more like who knows you, right? Mm. So it's not so much like what you know or who you know it's like who knows you, because Mm. if an opportunity comes up and I'm thinking, you know, who can I help or who can I bring in? I would just like instantly almost just go in my mind and think who in my mind seems to know about this stuff and mm. then I go to that person even if they may not be the best person. Yeah. Um, there is a, people always say stuff like the best product wins and I think that is like the biggest pile of bullshit ever. Um, I think the idea of the best product wins is a very idealistic thing yeah. actually is the best marketed product. Yeah. and so. Like, hand on heart, I can say FanBytes built a very great product, our technology, our process. But it wasn't like the best from a hardcore perspective, right? Some people build these, like, you know, some people introduce machine learning and recommendation software into their thing. But we absolutely swept the floor with them mm. because we cared a lot more about marketing and distribution rather than, like, building the, the best product you could ever hope for.
0: Um, One thing that was quite key when you were building Fanbytes Mm. um, was kind of creating your own technology to go with that and building your own systems. Why did you find that so important?
1: So I think I found it important for two reasons. The first one was that I knew that generally when you start a services business, if you then were to come to sell it, it would be um, valued on a multiple of EBIT, Mm. net profit and stuff. And I knew that actually... For us to really achieve the outcome we wanted, it made more sense for it to be more on a revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly, even before that, is I just thought about the scale of the opportunity that we wanted to be able to hit. Mm-hmm. And if we wanted to achieve that scale solely through people, you know, we'd probably have had to hire double the people mm-hmm. that we wanted, right? You know, so from seventy-five to like one hundred fifty people. And I just didn't want the headache. And mm. so technology was our way of basically being able to scale without scaling our people. Mm. A very fun fact actually is um, by the time the company was acquired, 40% of our revenue was coming from the US, mm. but we didn't have a single person there. And it was because we were using technology to be able to scale and mm. to be able to deliver there.
0: And, you know, even when you were talking there, there's there's a certain level of like disruption yeah, um, because, you know, Essentially, it was an industry that didn't really exist, yeah. and you know you had to come in and kind of almost educate people. And I'm just curious, as someone who was you know 22, 23, yeah. even 21 when you first started the business, how did people kind of, when you went into rooms to talk to them, how did they kind of, was there a level of like, who's this young kid coming in and talking to us, or were, <laughs> were people quite receptive to that kind of, that kind of approach?
1: So I think people would always treat you how you treat yourself. So if you treat yourself with an air of confidence and maturity and sturdiness, people would go, well, this person knows what they're talking about. They seem unflappable in the way that they talk. So it must be right, you know? And so I don't think there was ever anyone or any feeling of, well, they don't know what they're talking about. I think it's more he is so unshakable in the way that he thinks this is the future. Mm. Well, I guess it must be, right? Mm. And that was definitely a competitive edge in like the first year or so. And then once you build some good case studies and stuff, Mm. then you can reference case studies. And then by that time, the business is kind of um, 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 humming along by itself. Mm. But I definitely think that at the beginning, if it wasn't, going in and saying well like this is the future like your business is going to be disrupted by mm. this or your marketing is going to be disrupted by this Gen Z are not paying attention to your TV ads your radio ads like your all of this other stuff they're focusing on these new influences and here is the data and I'm so sure of it I've built a complete business around it mm. you go well I mean. It, it must be true, yeah. right? Um, and so I definitely believe in this also Like, people will treat you how you treat yourself, and mm. because I treated myself, or I treated the company as like uh, a very strong, dominant person, that's mm. the way that it worked.
0: So again, keeping on that disruption theme, yeah. And you know, you've mentioned about the angel investors, and you know that there is a VC issue, yeah. Is there any part of you now that you've exited that you kind of go like, maybe I want to try and improve VC? Is that something that you've thought about?
1: No, no, no. I have, I have no intentions of mm. doing that. Because I think a big part of the reason why people go the whole VC route is, again, it's just a status game, mm. right? Like people want to work with uh, name brand VCs because they think that's what equates success. And it probably comes from school, right? Like people, people want to go to Oxbridge because they want the name Oxbridge. Mm. People want to go to specific uh, banks to work at because they want that name. So even as an entrepreneur, sometimes you are very interested in just playing the status game Mm. rather than the financial games. Um, That was something that I always kind of was very wary of, like don't play the status game because you could go down the path of then getting a huge office. Why? Because you want to have a huge office. You can go down the path of you raise money and it's like, in fact, one thing that absolutely pisses me off is when I read something about someone who's raised money and they say, all right, we've raised this amount. We are 35 people and our aim is then to get to 100 people by the end of the year. It's like, why? Mm. I thought you got into this to like make profit mm. and then, you know, potentially sell. But it's like, yay, we've now raised money to now triple our costs, woo! Mm. It's, it, it's such a silly way of thinking about business. And um, I think more people should actually think the inverse of that, what makes more sense rather than what makes sense for others.
0: And we've already touched on the kind of um, tech funding bubble that's kind of happening at the moment um where do you kind of see this ending do you think it's naturally just gonna kind of be a bubble and suddenly people are gonna have less money to pump into stuff or do you how how do you see this ending
1: yeah i mean this thing always goes in market cycles right Mm. because human beings are irrational creatures and from when in 2020 people were selling pictures of a rock for like two million Mm. and they said it's it's the new age of ownership it's like no it is bullshit mm-hmm. and it is and you are convincing yourself of it so this is what's going to happen there'll be some you know we're in a recession we're going into a recession blah blah um, things will tighten blah 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 it, it will then happen for about three years and then in three to five years people will say it's a new paradigm and then the same thing will happen again that's 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 just the game that we're in. It happened in 2008, and then it happened in, you know, it's happening now. It will just keep happening and happening. So, unfortunately, you can't change the way human beings operate.
0: So you mentioned earlier about the importance of technology and obviously now that you're out and you've exited the business yeah. was there any kind of technology that is intriguing you i'm sure you get pictures all the time with various yeah, yeah coins yeah. and all kinds of stuff <laughs> but as far as like blockchain and things like that is there any kind of technology that you're interested in
1: i mean the most obvious one and the one we are talking about right now is you know Chat gpt and uh, generative ai and all of that i think Chat gpt definitely has some substance in it hmm. i think um LLMs and all those are just ways to do what people are currently doing, but do it faster mm. and do it at scale and anything that enables you to do that, there is definitely some substance in there. I remember what well, two, three years ago when, you know, NFTs and all of that. Mm. And and I just kept telling people this Web3 thing is just absolute bullshit. Mm. It's absolute bullshit. Um, And the whole thing was you know people want to take ownership of their data and all that stuff and my whole thing of that was if it cannot be applied to you know tom who lives in hartlepool Mm. then this is not going to be something that really changes like you know tom from hartlepool does not give a crap who owns his data Mm. he just wants to have a nice life get on with his day Mm. um you know nice family get a job done right Mm. and so if technology can help him to achieve that that's great if it's just some kind of this is what the world should be like of ownership and idealism then it doesn't make any sense so um chat gpt llms that's quite interesting web 3 the whole space to me was just a bunch of um smoke and mirrors basically
0: Mm. and As we mentioned, you have exited now. Um, I'm going to save you answering the obvious question of what's next, but are you putting pressure on yourself for something or are you quite chilled about what you're going to do next?
1: So if we'd been having this conversation shortly after um, shortly after the acquisition, the answer would have been very different. The answer would have been, yes, I am putting a lot of pressure on myself. But, you know, When we saw the company, there was still some work to be done in terms of integrating the companies, integrating uh, fanbites inside of Brain Labs, which actually did uh, keep me quite busy. And so I think it was a very important kind of transition period where I didn't feel the need to just dive directly into something else. And so now, am I putting pressure on myself? Um, No. And I think it is because I am being a lot more choosy about the circumstances mm-hmm. to build the next company. Um, probably the probably the biggest thing is being choosy around the people. Um, we were saying earlier, I think off camera, was when um, when I was younger and or just earlier in the game, I would learn and I would read a lot of uh, successful people talking about how they build their companies, etc. And they'd always say stuff about, it's all about the people. And I'd always think it's just absolute crap, right? I'd I'd be like, no, just, you know, like tell me what sales and marketing thing that you did. Don't just say it's all about the people or some kind of humble brag that you're doing. But, but I have come to realize, especially after the experience with fan buys, that it really is all about the people. Like people are indeed your competitive advantage. And so I'm spending a lot more time getting the conditions right by spending more time with the type of people i would want to start a business with at some point the Mm -hmm. type of people who give me energy the type of people who i can learn from those type of people and that is perhaps what i'm spending the most amount of time on it's not so much the idea Mm -hmm. because i think once you have the right people um and you pick generally a decent market Mm. like things happen Mm. but you could pick a great market and if the people are not the ones that you want to spend time with, that are not the right fit, then I've seen it so many times where it absolutely fails.
0: It's now time for a very, very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Centre to bring okay. you the uh, Good News Postcard. And your question today <laughs> comes from Grace, age 11. Hi, my name is Grace from the Jill Dando News Centre at Castlebatch Primary School Academy. <laughs> Dando valued positivity. What's your favourite characteristic
1: and why? Hi Grace, thanks for your question. My favourite characteristic in people is accountability. So people who actually own up to things they're going to do and then they do it. Because there's a lot of people who say they will do things and they don't do it. And you want to stay away from those people
0: that is a great question and a brilliant answer so my final question for you obviously we are business leaders so what would you say makes a great business leader
1: one is uh self-awareness being able to know your strengths and your weaknesses and not being afraid to double down on your strengths rather than aiming to be an all-rounder if you look at a lot of the best business leaders in the world they are good at a few things and they just zone in and focus on that second one is somewhat linked which is humility Mm -hmm. and by humility i actually don't mean like like be mad humble right because i actually think that most really successful people have a superiority complex Mm -hmm. like they think that they are better they think they can be better but i think it's also just being radically aware of the fact that you don't know everything Mm. and you know for example for me I've said several times that a big part of my success I can attribute to the fact that I'm aware I don't know a lot of things and so I just like rigorously learn and study Mm. and read about skills and attributes that I want to embody. And then the third would be actually what we spoke about earlier, which was accountability. I think being able to do what you say you will do and being able to hold yourself to a higher standard, which doesn't need someone else to hold you to that standard, mm-hmm. is so, so, so rare mm-hmm. nowadays. A lot of us who came in from the school system were told what to do and how to think, and so because of that, a lot. You know, there's a phrase on Twitter called um, NPCs. Um, was it, what is NPCs?
0: Non non-playable characters. Yeah, I'm to non- so. say. <laughs> oh, there you go, right?
1: Yeah, and it's so easy to be an NPC nowadays mm. because you just kind of are told what to do, and you say, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm not saying it from like an entrepreneur perspective, like whether you work in teams as an employee, etc., being able to have like a self-accountability of holding yourself to a standard, doing what you say you will do without someone having to follow up on you, without someone having to tell you, is a massive competitive advantage. So those three things, like self-awareness, humility and accountability are the three things that I really value in business leaders.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant uh, advice for sure. And do you have any kind of final words for uh, for our audience
1: today? Maybe one of the biggest pieces of advice that I wish I'd had earlier um, is when you're running a business, you tend to think, like, if this business was not to work out the way you'd want to, like, everything would be lost. And i think a very important thing is to not see your business as your baby
0: Mm.
1: that is something a lot of people talk about you know this business my baby and i always go well um two things the first one is if it was your baby at some point the baby's got to grow up Mm. right so like you've got to be able to um let it fly and then the second thing is you are not your business and your business is not you. So like really have a healthy detachment from your business because that would help you to make much better decisions. And so many, so many, so many entrepreneurs, so many entrepreneurs are very good at solving other people's problems and not their own problems because they're so immersed in it Mm. that they are not able to see reality from opinion mm. and so being able to detach yourself from your business see it as something that serves you rather than you serving it especially if you're going through the scaling phase is probably the biggest mindset shift that i can give to any entrepreneur
0: yeah no, absolutely that's that's a brilliant way to leave it thank you so much tim and uh where can people kind of follow your journey uh as uh, you you take your next step shall we say see my
1: next step um well i'm quite visible so Instagram, LinkedIn, everywhere, just search my name, you'll see me. But Instagram and LinkedIn is where I share a lot of my thoughts on it.